Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission statement of empowering people through chess, one move at a time. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit. You can find more information about us at uschess.org. You can become a member by clicking on the join button. And you can donate to our cause by clicking on the gift button. Thank you to USCF Sales for sponsoring this podcast. At the end of this recording, you can hear how you can win a $50 gift certificate to USCFSales.com. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's pod. I'm pleased to welcome to the show Isaac Steinkamp. Originally of Richmond, Virginia, Isaac is now a fourth-year student at the University of Pittsburgh, where he's also the chess team captain of the university. He's manager of the Pittsburgh Pawn Grabbers and the Pro Chess League, and a streamer for chess.com. He's played chess for over 15 years and is currently an expert-rated player. In his junior year of high school, he coached his school team to win first place in the under-1200 division of the National High School Chess Championship. And also of very particular interest to this podcast, he is the director of the website ChessSummit.com, which has a lot of interesting writing by many uh, well-known and not so well-known players in the chess community. So welcome to the show, Isaac. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Certainly. We're glad to have you. Let's get right into it. Tell us how you got involved in chess. What is the start of your chess career? Of course. So... Just to kind of give a little bit of context here, I'm 22 years old. I'm going into my uh, final year at the University of Pittsburgh. So that means when I started learning how to play chess when I was in about kindergarten through third grade, uh, chess.com and all of these online websites that we come to know and love now weren't necessarily available to me as I was, you know, preparing to, you know, try to break a thousand at that time, try to, you know, be competitive at the state scholastic level. And so my kindergarten year, I was actually exposed to chess through my um, elementary school program. And that allowed me to kind of meet other people who were active within the Richmond community. I grew up in Henrico County, so I got to meet a lot of people from the West End, got to play in a lot of scholastic tournaments. And one thing I definitely noticed throughout this time was that you know, Richmond was becoming this kind of central hub for chess. We're, you know, two hours south of D.C. and Northern Virginia, which, of course, is a vibrant chess community. And as Charlotte's becoming a bigger and bigger chess scene, we're kind of geographically right in the middle of that. And so as I was kind of introduced to chess, I, I was able to really benefit from a lot of the resources that were available to me while I was in third grade. I hit about 1,300 in third grade, which, you know, I guess by professional standards is absolutely meaningless. Um, but... I got stuck and basically for about three to four years, I was 1300 for a really long time and unable to kind of figure out what happened. I actually took a break for a year completely and I came back to chess in about my eighth grade, ninth grade year and everything had changed kind of overnight. There was a chess.com now, chess.com had started in 2007 and was just starting to get big around 2009. Um, there was, you know, more than just doing lessons on ICC now, there was, you know, Skype calling for lessons was becoming a much bigger thing than it had in the past and you know self-driven learning was starting to become the trend in, in terms of chess development and that was kind of what pulled me back in actually you know i i was stuck at 1300 i didn't know where to go but with all these online resources i felt like i had a second chance and you know as i was trying to balance work and school and chess I, I found that you know being able to do tactics regularly even if it was just 15 30 minutes a day made a big difference and in one year i jumped to 1700 
And I guess that kind of triggered off where we are now. So I, I, I do have to say that there was an interesting contrast. You know, when I was growing up, the Richmond chess community was pretty vibrant. But now, you know, when I was like in middle school, high school, a lot of that had disappeared. And one thing that I had heard in one of your previous podcasts was when parents move on or when their kids move on, a lot of the times the chess community just disappears. And one thing that I wanted to do as I kind of hit 1700 and realized there weren't a lot of players for me to play was try to, you know, build on, you know, what was already there and try to make chess a little bit more prominent in the Richmond community. And I'm curious with everything, uh, that you've been involved in as a, as a chess player, especially as, uh, what's a, you know, as a relatively young chess player, um, since you've become involved in so many sur- thing, uh, the activities that surround chess, uh, many young players are just only interested in getting a, a game across the board. Was Did something happen when you were young that made you interested in some of the outreaching areas of chess? When I started playing chess, my parents were, you know, as a lot of parents are very involved with, you know, driving me to tournaments, making sure that I could get to various scholastic events. And my dad was actually president of the Virginia Scholastic Association for a few years uh, before he stepped down. And so I got a little bit of insight in terms of how does a nonprofit chess organization work? And okay, a third grader's understanding of how that works is probably not sufficient to run any sort of nonprofit. It started to make me think in terms of what does chess need to, you know, become more prominent in our popular culture? What do people need in order to be exposed to chess? And when I entered high school and I started going to our club meetings, I realized that a lot of these players were players that had played alongside me when I was in third grade and maybe had like a 500 or a 700 rating and stopped because these tournaments stopped becoming available to them. But they were still quite strong players. And what I realized was if these players were already interested in chess and, you know, you know, life happened and maybe there was a sport involved or the parents couldn't drive them to tournaments or maybe they wanted to focus on school so they could get in, you know, to Maggie Walker, which was considered the the top notch high school in the Richmond area. You know, that kind of took away their focus from chess. But now that, you know, we were high school students, we're looking to go into college. How can we bring that energy back among people who are at one time committed to the chess community? And I think one thing that makes Richmond unique is it's a pretty young city where we, uh, we had about a five year, you know, we were, I think the median age in Richmond is about 32 years old, where, whereas the national average is something like 37, 38 years old. And so it's a young city. There's a lot of people who are trying new things. Uh, Richmond prides itself now on like a, you know, a newer, newer food culture, trying out different, you know, you know, meeting, meeting different people from different backgrounds and chess definitely kind of fulfills, you know, you know, that kind of staple of what Richmond's trying to be. So when it came to how do we bring the VSA back into Richmond, it kind of seemed like the simple answer was, well, Maybe it should be student driven. Um, You know, if the players are the ones that want to see more chess, maybe it's up to the players themselves to become accountable and step up and actually make those venues possible. Um, And that was one thing that I wanted to work on beginning roughly around my sophomore year of high school. And I realized that if I want to play in tournaments, I'm going to have to go to Northern Virginia every weekend to, you know, to get something competitive. Why not build something here with what we have? And so you were only 18 when you uh, joined the Virginia Scholastic Chess Association Board of Directors, correct? Uh, Yes, that'd be correct. And it, how unusual was that? Are, you, are you the only one that was ever um, that young on the board, or do they typically have uh, a youth member? So I, I believe when I was elected to the board, I was the youngest member at the time to ever be elected. I'm not sure if that's changed since I've moved to Pittsburgh, um, but I'm pretty sure the next youngest um, member on the board was probably about 20 years older than me. So it was a little bit different. 
when I when I re- when I decided to run for the board, I knew that I would only be serving a one year term because it looked like I'd be going to university outside of Richmond, and you know that would kind of make it difficult to try to represent the community that I was trying to help build. And so, what I wanted to do in my one year was help schools that are trying to build clubs understand what resources are available to them, and show them that it's actually not that difficult to run a scholastic event once a year. It's not that difficult to reach out to the Virginia Scholastic Chess Association and become involved and get the resources that you need. Um, I also wanted to show parents that, you know, if you know if they teach their kids how to play chess young, and their kids are motivated and decide to become part of the chess community, that can also help teach the kids, you know, how to have grit which I think is something that is not really emphasized as much within the chess community um, as, you know, compared to like test scores and whatnot. Um, but what I found is that when people feel like they have a voice within the chess community and they want to be able to run events and the resources are available to them, they usually do that. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, for at least one more year, we had a board member from Richmond that could represent that voice. When you joined, did you have a good sense of what a board of directors really is and does. I I know that I was probably well into my 30s before I even thought about a board of directors and what that meant. So I had a little bit of an idea. I, you know, I had some of my dad's analyses from when he was a president of the VSCA. Um, So I kind of understood what the VSCA needed to do as a whole in order to get back to some of the previous success that it had had. And a lot of that was, you know, coordinating with clubs and making sure that we had uh, the proper connections with the administration. And, you know, we were in constant good standing so we could run events at their, at their locations. So, you know, I had TD'd for the VSCA at that point for about three years and I was going all over the state. I was going to Virginia beach. I was going to like Charlottesville, Western Virginia, Roanoke. Um, and it was just a matter of, you know, channeling that energy and bringing it back into Richmond. And what we saw, you know, my, senior year was the number of tournaments that happened in Richmond probably doubled. I think it went from like about five tournaments a year in Richmond to about 10. But the number of players in those tournaments also grew exponentially as well. I remember my freshman year, I tried to run a tournament at my high school, Maggie Walker Governor's School, and we had maybe about 50 people the first time we ran it. My junior year, uh, we ran it. We didn't realize it was the same day as the Richmond Marathon. And if you haven't been to Richmond and you're not familiar with the marathon, the marathon basically circles around the entire city and parking and getting anywhere is practically impossible. We had about 80 people show up to that tournament. So the energy that we were able to generate over the course of about one, two years was able to really help stimulate growth within the Richmond chess community. I'm really interested in your chess summit website. What was the genesis of that? Right around the time where I got on the board, I realized a lot of the questions I was getting from parents and from students who were trying to improve were pretty similar. And I could actually relate to them myself, having been stuck at 1300 for about three to four years. Um, What a lot of Scholastic players don't realize is there's a lot more to chess than just their chess club at school or the Scholastic events that they play in, you know, at their local high school. There's also, you know, you know, adult level events or open tournaments, you know, as obviously we refer to them as. And, you know, obviously that wasn't introduced to me and, you know, being stuck playing 800s regularly who are up and coming and constantly losing, like going like three out of five, you don't go anywhere and it can be discouraging. So while I was director my senior year, I also wanted to have a hub where people could refer to if they couldn't get into contact with me, where I would answer a lot of the questions that I was getting on a pretty frequent basis. So I would talk about, you know, at the time trying to break the 2000 rating barrier, which I was able to do my senior year of high school. I also talked a lot about organizing some of the events that I ran, some of the chess clinics that we did at my high school, um, as well as, you know, what my personal goals were and how I was going to achieve them. I think talking openly about what your goals are and, you know, the different steps that you take can be really instructive, not just for yourself internally, but for others to see how, you know, someone maybe a thousand rating points, 1500 rating points higher rated than thinks. 
And I'm looking at your author list from from the website, and it, there's many names on here that people would recognize: uh, Tatav Abrahamian, um, Eric Rosen. So uh, you seem to be attracting some quality writers. Right. So my freshman year of college, uh, my coach and I had this crazy idea that maybe I could win the U.S. Junior Open, and so I started a whole GoFundMe campaign. I dedicated myself to the website. I think. At that point, I was contributing about two articles and a video per week between that August and when I played in the tournament that I believe it was in June. So we, I, I had this significant increase in amount of content coming to the site. And in response, we had a lot of people, you know, coming to the site, you know, asking me questions about, hey, why did you play this in this game? This was a really bad move. I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe I should take a note from that. Um, but I had this audience that I just didn't I wasn't ready to give up with. And what I realized while I was writing for Chess Summit was I wasn't alone in trying to share what I'm going through, share some of the challenges that I face as I'm trying to become an improving player. And, you know, it was as simple as asking one of my uh, friends who just graduated from Carnegie Mellon last year, National Master Balin Lee, and said, hey, do you want to write for Chess Summit? And it was really, you know, surprising to me how open people were to contribute to a website where the goal is just provide content for players who maybe don't have the resources or maybe live in a community where they feel isolated and are maybe the highest rated player but need resources that they can improve from. And we had a core team of members when we kind of relaunched in 2016. So that would have been myself, Balin Lee, Alice Dong, and Vishal Kobla. And we kind of started from there. We've added a lot of, you know, permanent guest, uh, permanent authors who write for us pretty recently, um, including international master David Brodsky, who's been talking about his performance in the U16 Olympiad. Um, but we also have a lot of guest authors, and that's where you know players like Tatev and Kostya and Eric Rosen um, have all contributed to the success of Chess Summit. Who's reading your site? Uh, are they other top players? Have you ever heard of somebody just coming to chess because they found Chess Summit in a, a Google search? Because you know our goal is just simply to put out content, I think a lot of the people that we reach are actually parents of younger players. I, you know, I had a parent ask me about a year ago, Hey, how much should I have my kid focus on, you know, tactics versus playing games? And I wrote a whole article on that. And, you know, every now and then we get questions from parents and that seems to be, you know, the average, you know, demographic of people who interact with us. And I think that it really helps us cater our message because if we know that we're talking to parents of, you know, kids who are ambitious, but maybe they don't know what the right direction is, we can help point them and, and, you know, point them there. So, you know, that's, that's the that's definitely the demographic that we interact most with. I know that a couple higher rated players read the site and they they message me privately privately. So I probably shouldn't you know say who their names are, uh, you know publicly. But uh, I know that we have you know a pretty wide spectrum. Our goal is you know our average audience would I would say is probably about a thousand to eighteen hundred. So we try to cast a pretty wide net. Do you have any goals for growing the website further, or is it right where you want it to be right now? I'm pretty content where where Chess Summit is right now. I would like for it to grow, um, but of course, you know, we want to also make sure that the content remains free. So, you know, we always want to consider: well, if the site needs to generate revenue to grow, is that really within our mission? And usually, the answer is no. So, lately, you know, we've been trying to extend our avenues. So that's how I actually got involved in the Pro Chess League. Uh, how I've you know actually become a streamer on, ch- uh, on chess.com. So it's opened a lot of doors for us to generate publicity, where we can still do what we're you know what we excel at without necessarily having to worry about you know you know asking our our readers to you know pay a premium fee just to read you know monthly articles. So I'd like to take a step back and talk about your current college career uh, because I listened, I'm listening to everything you're doing, and I'm trying to wonder with the major you have, when do you sleep? 
<laughs> to, to tell, tell our listeners what your major is. Yeah, so this is actually a really funny question because one of my moderators on chess.com asked me this regularly and my answer is uh well that yeah, let let's uh <laughs> let's not talk about that. But um so I'm a major in economics with a focus on macroeconomics at the University of Pittsburgh and I'm minoring in political science with an international relations um focus. And so yeah, I mean, it's definitely a balancing act. At times I feel like I'm wearing a lot of different hats when I should probably only be wearing one. But in reality, I find what I do to be a lot of fun. Like, you know, I'm, I get to talk about, you know, my games, you know, publicly and, you know, have people, you know, discuss, hey, maybe you should have played this move or, oh, wow, this was really instructive as to why you went for this strategy. And, you know, with the Pro Chess League, I can already see the value that it's brought to the Pittsburgh chess community. And we're just entering our third year. Um, so I know what I'm doing is important. So I prioritize it. Um, so then that way I don't necessarily have to, you know, think of it as making a sacrifice. It's just something that I feel like I need to do. And what are you looking to do as a career outside of college? So I figured I would get this question. Um, and I guess one thing I should say, it's been kind of interesting to me about how quickly people have been willing to speak on my behalf about what I want to do when I graduate. If you talk to some of my viewers, maybe on Twitch or um, you know subscribers, they'd think, oh, he's going to go into chess professionally, or maybe he's already a chess professional. If you talk to my parents, they're thinking, oh, he's going to go down the more like you know traditional private sector, you know, banking job. And the reality is, I'm still trying to figure things out. I spent the last three to four years thinking I wanted to go into politics and government. And I've had internships in various institutions that have kind of given me exposure to what life in those sectors would be like. And as much as I admire the work that those people do, and as much as I respect um, the values that those institutions hold, I just, you know, I, I kind of realized, hey, maybe this isn't for me. So I graduate in August, which makes it difficult to apply for positions right now. So it's giving me a lot of time to explore, you know, what kind of careers would allow me to be creative, think outside of the box and kind of dictate the workflow rather than kind of being told, hey, you need to do this. Hey, you need to do this. Um, I, I obviously know that that sounds pretty generic for, you know, your average college student, but I am doing a lot of research right now and I'm trying to keep an open mind as, you know, different people come to talk to me about, you know, why I should work for their company. So as you've pursued your major, have there been times when you've thought to yourself, oh, you know what, what I'm working on right now, I'm, I'm really glad I'm a chess player. It's, it's transferable to what I'm studying. Or has, has that not ever happened? I mean, I think with the amount of work I've put into my community projects with chess, it's definitely taught me how to be more efficient at studying, more efficient at doing my work, um, communicate better professionally. And that, I think, is much more important than, you know, the individual, like, units that I learned within my micro or macroeconomics classes. Now, I think the other way around, economics actually is really important with, you know, chess development and, you know, building a chess business. I'm running an internship program right now with the Pittsburgh Pond Grabbers. I was just talking to my intern the other day about fan interaction strategies and how we need to consider marginal revenue and marginal cost and, you know, how do we identify what are fixed and variable costs are going forward throughout the season and, you know, where can we maximize our profits while also making sure that we don't feel like we're cheating the customer. You know, that that's fascinating. And it's also uh, one thing that jumped out at me was the fact that you have an intern there as well. I, I didn't realize that uh, the, the Pro Chess League has gotten to the, a big enough state where interns can be involved. So not every team has an internship program. We were actually inspired by uh, Montreal's program that they ran. Well, they don't necessarily run it specific to the team, but chess bra themselves, they run an internship program. And what we realized was that the kind of professional development that we need in order to make the Pittsburgh Pond Grabbers professional, like professional and more, you know, attractive for fans 
is you know very relevant to work experience. Uh, we have five interns working for us right now. Um, we're currently in the process of building a website from scratch. Um, we, we launched the beta version at pghpondgrabbers.com, and we're also trying to you know be a little bit more involved on social media. Try to you know work with different media outlets in the Pittsburgh community to you know advertise what we're doing and why what we're doing is important. Um, but you know the Pittsburgh Pond Grabbers and the Protest League are growing you know very quickly, and it's our job to make sure that we cover all of our bases as that league grows. Who are your top players on the Pond Grabbers? We are currently in our signing period going into the 2019 season, but I'm sure our, our fans are more than happy to hear that Awander Liang will be back, um, and I'm sure that that's a pretty common household name at this point. But uh, Alexander Shabalov will also return as well as international master Tuan Men Le um, from Vietnam, who's known as Wonderful Time on Chess.com, for those of you guys who follow the top bullet players. Your Twitch streaming, is that directly related to the Pro Chess League, or is that a separate entity altogether? So at first, they were kind of connected. When I started the the Pittsburgh Pond Grabbers stream last year, we didn't know how big the, the Pro Chess League would be. So we actually streamed it off of my personal account, where we knew we already had a f- following. But now that we have a better sense of to how quickly the league is growing, we're actually developing our own um, media profile specific to the pawn grabbers. So then that way the brand doesn't necessarily have to be limited by my ability to you know have outreach within the community. So we now run a separate Twitch channel for that. But I actually got started streaming for Twitch um, because of some of the experiences I had through the Pittsburgh pawn grabbers. I learned OBS you know, pretty quickly. And it's not that difficult of a program to learn. And, you know, once I started investing in a microphone and a green screen, I was like, well, I might as well, you know, start doing this regularly since I already have all of the equipment I need to, you know, basically, you know, be a somewhat, you know, active streamer. So it kind of grew from that, but they, they've kind of gone their own different ways. You threw in an acronym there that I don't know, uh, OBS. Right. So OBS stands for online broadcasting software. Um, and it's a very basic free streaming package that a lot of chess.com stream use as well as streamers who play other games as well. Um, It's actually a really easy program to use. You just connect it to your Twitch or your YouTube and you just hit the start streaming button and that's that's how you get found. Let's take a jump back from these digital uh, pursuits to what was probably a more analog time when you were building your high school team that won the 2014 uh, under 1200 division at the National High School Championship. Uh, what was involved in building that team? It originally started as an accident. You know, I, I uh, was you know I just started playing people at my club and. Eventually, the question that I got asked the most was, hey, what did I do wrong this game? And I realized that, hey, if, you know, if we're going to you know, call ourselves a chess club and people want to improve, let's actually make sure that we have the resources that we need to improve. So we, you know, we, between the Richmond community and some of the coaches who are willing to work with us, you know, you know either for free or at a very low rate, uh, and myself, you know, we trained a lot of the players. And as we kind of moved through my sophomore year, we realized that some of these high school players who had dropped off of the radar um, in their middle school years because of the lack of activity in Richmond were quite competitive. And even with only a four-person team with an average rating of something like 12, 1300, we placed third in the state my sophomore year at the state championship. So I knew going into my junior year, we had an opportunity to build on that success. And one thing that I knew would be important was our community outreach. Um, I, I'm not sure if this is a you know component for high school graduation across the country, but Maggie Walker has a particularly... Um, high community service hours requirement in order to graduate. I think it was 120 or maybe it's like 180 hours. Um, I can't remember the exact number, but we realized that if we built programs that help the community, not only would that be good for chess, but that would help, you know, these students who are trying to find these opportunities, um, 
to basically fulfill their graduation requirements. So we, you know, we took the initiative. We started building chess clinics that operated once a month. We ran a chess camp that I believe is still running and should be running this summer, but um, I don't think they've launched that information yet. And basically, the key component to building an under twelve hundred team is how closely are the players in contact with each other and what kind of commitments do they make between each other my job as coaching was just as simple as making sure that the players knew what openings they wanted to play making sure that they could get to tournaments regularly coordinating carpools making sure that you know they were committing to the team and showing up to practice but the development that happened between some of the players was pretty incredible and you know i can't take credit for that that was a commitment that they made onto each other um and when we flew to san diego we knew that we had a really good shot and we had three players placed in the top 15, four placed in the top 50, and that was enough to take the first place by half a point. And to be clear, you were coaching because you were uh, well over 1,200 at this point. You weren't actually on this particular team. Of course. I was actually 1,900 by the time my junior year came around. So I was fairly involved on the coaching side. I played in the open section that year. I didn't do very well. I think I got like four and a half out of seven. So something like barely top 100. But I was pretty involved in making sure we would go over everybody's games between the rounds, make quick opening fixes. Um, one thing that was really interesting to me, uh, and maybe coaches who you know are listening to the podcast can relate, when you play in the scholastic level, um, a lot of your students face like these Relopezes, these Spanish Four Nights. But when you get to these national tournaments, like the Scotch opening is all of a sudden becomes extremely popular. So it's all about finding these last minute fixes where maybe it might not be the best theoretical line, but for an under 1200 player, if you could just get out of the opening, you're fine. So what can we do there? You were just a junior at this time, not even a senior. That, you know, that's really amazing to me uh, that uh, you had those kind of leadership capabilities at a young age. The the kids must have really looked up to you. I mean, perhaps, uh, you know, I... I I guess what I would say is I was really fortunate to work with a lot of people who were not only committed to their own chess improvement, but were committed to each other. I mean, I can't take full credit for this national championship, obviously, because at the end of the day, I wasn't the one who was playing the games. But, you know, these players, once they saw the potential that this program had, they really bought in. And even in the following year, even though we didn't win the under 1600 section, they still finished fifth place with the same players. So, you know, there, there was a lot of individual buy-in there. And my job was just to make sure that they, you know, committed to each other, that we were, you know, making sure that we were going to events. And we also ran a USCF affiliate at the time. So during our practices, they would actually play rated games against each other. And, you know, there'd be a little bit of competition and, you know, everybody would want to beat everybody every, every week. So it was really nice to see that kind of level of competition rise within the club, but, you know, they there is still you know, a high level of respect between the players. So the purpose of our podcast is to give ideas uh, that are transferable across various communities around the U.S. Um, and, and share good ideas. With all these various activities you've done throughout your chess career, what do you think is probably the most transferable to somebody that wants to bring new players to the game? Of course, as I kind of introduced the, the myself within the podcast, Richmond, I think, is an ideal city that like we would want chess to evolve there. And for geographic reasons, it's in between two chess hubs between Charlotte and Washington, D.C. It's a very young city. The population is only slightly smaller than a city like Pittsburgh. So when that the, there's a lot of turnover and a lot of these parents are, you know, maybe their kids go to high school and they're no longer interested in chess or their kids to go to college and they're no longer involved in the scholastic scene, it can be really difficult to generate a lot of attention. And when you don't have, you know, people who are, you know, actively involved in chess because, you know, their, you know, their kids are involved or because, you know, they're personally involved, it, it becomes really difficult to start doing things like run tournaments and coordinate different venues. And so I think the number one thing that can help chess grow the fastest is if the actual high school players themselves take a little bit 
bit of accountability and start growing their own programs. Um, one thing that I like to tell a lot of people who ask me about the programs that I ran when I was in high school is you have to fail a lot of times. Um, this wasn't something that just happens overnight. Um, you run chess club meetings and sometimes only one guy shows up. Great. Pay attention to that one guy, help him improve, help him get everything he needs out of it. Sometimes you run a community event and maybe only five people show up. You know, that's, that's just how things happen. Maybe you planned it on a date that was maybe not convenient for everybody, but if the high school players learn how to use chess as a way to bring younger players out into the game, it helps build a stronger scholastic community where, you know, at some of these scholastic events, we would have kids from the K3 section during the games walk over and watch our high school team play because they knew that, you know, maybe Matthew or Jeffrey or Charles would, you know, give a really interesting game as a 1500 rated player. Um, and that's kind of the energy that you want to build. I think another thing that could help build a chess team and the way that we built it was when we started running scholastic events, we wanted to encourage our players to keep on showing up. And one thing that was, you know, brought up to me was when you have a lot of 1500 rated players on your team, why do they want to play in a four round tournament where they're playing probably two people under 800? It's, you know, not maybe not what they should be doing and they should be looking for adult tournaments. But again, with Richmond, not having a lot of venues for that, we decided to create our own. And whenever we ran a scholastic event, we would have a section exclusive and you'd have to be rated over a thousand in order to play in that section. And we got a lot of competitive players playing there. And we had a lot of players who played in there as kids who are now very successful players now. Um, and I think that that kind of development where you have the actual players themselves take charge of their learning, take charge of the community that they're being a part of, it teaches them a lot, um, not just about chess, but also about um, how to be professional, how to work with other people, um, and most importantly, grit. And I really like your comment that you have to fail a lot because it's it's almost like getting better at chess itself. You have to lose an awful lot of games in chess to improve your rating. Yeah, of course. And the same goes for Chess Summit as well. I mean, I can definitely say that my skills as an 11th grade writer are certainly a lot worse than they are now. And so whenever I get someone who's young who says, hey, I want to write, but my writing skills might not be up to par as yours. I'm like, well, if you, if you write a couple articles, you stay with us for a couple of months, you'll get there. Uh, but you, you just try things out and if they don't work, you, you move on and you, you take your lessons away from them. Well, Isaac, thank you so much for taking the time to, to, uh, speak to us. This has been a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed hearing everything you had to say. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me on. And good luck as you complete your, your college career and enter the workforce. And, uh, I, really excited to continue reading chesssummit.com. I read a lot of good articles on it as I prepared for this. Thank you so much. I'll make sure to pass that along to the team. Hey, bye-bye. Bye. It is time to announce the winner of this month's contest, generously sponsored by U.S. Chess Sales, which you can find online at uscfsales.com. Congratulations to Curtis Ficucci of Texas. Your $50 gift certificate should now be in your email's inbox. If you want a chance to win a $50 gift certificate to uscfsales.com, send your name and phone number to podcast at uschess.org with one move at a time as your subject line, and please include a question or a comment. The winner will be selected at random from all of this month's entries. Thank you for joining us on this December edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. The January edition will be available on January 8th. And make sure to listen to our companion podcast, Cover Stories with Chess Life. The December edition of that show is currently available at the podcast link on uschess.org. Our theme music was composed by national master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back in January with another Chess World personality who is helping to empower people through chess one move at a time.